At the Cryptid Keeper podcast, we love to laugh at the darkness, but we would never laugh at the rich cultures that explore it, or the unique cultural significance of the creatures explored. The jokes within are on no one but us. We encourage additional research on the subjects covered here, and hope that a comedy podcast is not your primary source of information. Sometimes life feels like a musical, but if you hear voices singing while you're out in the middle of the ocean on a ship... It might be a good idea to plug your ears and have your crew tie you to the mast. Thank you, and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Cryptid Keeper Podcast, the podcast for cryptids and their keepers. That means us, and if you're listening, it means you too. I'm Alex Flanagan. And I'm Addison Peacock. I've developed a really bad habit of starting that intro right after I like land some really bad jokes on Addison, so she's just never ready when Mm-mm. it comes. And she's almost inevitably making, like, the most awkward faces when we start these episodes. So. And I'm Addison Peacock. I want you all to have that visual image next time you start an episode of Cryptid. Or just, like, restart this one. Just, like, go back real quick. <laughs> just, like, hit that back button a few times on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever your get platform the, like, of choice is. Go back 15 seconds button. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Just hit that one a few times. Just, like, smack that real good. And then, um, yeah, just imagine Addison, like, sort of working her face up in, like, frustration but also amusement. Also mm. amusement. Okay, good. I was just checking on that. <laughs> please, please. Amusement? Please? Yes. Am- please? Mm, yeah. Uh, yes. Okay. Um, let's get a few more takes of that one. I think we've almost got it. And I'm Addison Peacock. Now try it with a Cockney <laughs> accent. <laughs> I just feel like the Seinfeld oh. baseline should go there. <laughs> We're going to start putting the Seinfeld baseline in our episodes. Anyway. And I'm Addison Peacock. All right. <laughs> uh, thank you for that, Dick Van Dyke. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so are you ready to go down this cryptozoological hole with me? I'm I'm always ready to go down the cryptozoological hole with you. Good. I'm glad, because I'm about to make yet another really terrible joke. Oh, okay, well. So for some uh, some setup here, I guess, oh, now God, that I okay. know the punchline is coming, uh, I sometimes like to sort of base my cryptid choices on events going on in the real world or, like, just sort of chronological timing. Like, I've done several other water-based cryptids this summer just because it's been, like, beach times. You know, like, if next time you go to the beach, just imagine, like, a mile-wide crack in there. Like, that's fun (laughs) for you, right? Um, Uh, Or when I was going to be in West Virginia, and so I was deciding to do the the Yahoo, and that was a lot of fun. Um, But next week, I'm going to be in New York. And so I decided to do uh, an episode on some merfolk. And do you know why, Addison? Why? It's because there are so many sirens in New York City. It's because of the high crime rate. This kills the man. No, it's because of the merfolk. (laughs) It's because, Alex, the high crime rate of New York City is nothing to joke about. Well, that just killed everything. <laughs> sorry. No, I'm I'm kidding. I'm sorry. Uh, no, but anyway, that's my terrible, terrible lead-in. Everyone knows that humor works best when you give an in-depth explanation of why you're making the joke that lasts longer than the joke itself. You know what? <laughs> I don't need to be dragged like this on what is partially my podcast. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm not going to claim full ownership, but hmm. I think I at least deserve a little bit of credit here. I kind of expected a merfolk uh, joke based on how many Starbucks there are in I was uh, leaning York. toward that, and then since we got Starbucks this morning, I felt like it would have been a little bit played out. A little so. bit on the nose? A little bit too on the nose. But uh, Starbucks! Mermaids. You know she's not supposed to be a mermaid. She's supposed to be something else, and that's why it's not horrifying that she's holding like both si- halves of her tail Is it up though? by her face. It's still it's pretty still bad. Horrifying. Because, you know, like impact is... More than intent. Like, no, I don't care totally. what she was supposed to be. She looks like a mermaid that's sort of like, uh, we're not going to go down that body horror Wrenched path, like. herself in half. Yeah, it's, it's, rent herself in twain. It's bad. <laughs> 
Swimmer folk. Swimmer folk, all right. And we are going to put a bit of a focus on sirens. All but right. actually, that's a whole interesting thing in and of itself because sirens and merfolk are not even originally related whatsoever. It's sort of been a fascinating, twisty, turny, uh, you know, journey of linguistic evolution and of perception and oral yeah. history and mythology that's sort of lent them to be grouped in together. But originally, not the same creature at all whatsoever. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, well, that's sort of... Uh, speaking of the kraken and water-based cryptids, mm-hmm. sounds to me like how the kraken is sort of this crab-like creature, and then like over time it became associated with like the giant squid, and it sort of melded those two things together, and now we picture the kraken with like tentacles and yeah, it's very similar to that actually. So basically, the older a cryptid or a piece of mythos is, the more likely it is to have been sort of twisted and. Uh, conglomerated over time because we tend to sort of jumble all our stories up, right? I mean, sometimes even the things that people told me literally five minutes ago, I get mixed up with other things they told me ten minutes ago. Oh, absolutely. I can't imagine, you know, trying to keep straight myths that I've been passed down from the last generation versus ones that have been around for hundreds of thousands of years. So that's the problem with oral history is it can become one giant cultural game of telephone. Yeah, that's a very good way of putting it. Yeah. Uh, But in this case, let's start with sirens. So sirens, initially... Uh, come to us from Greek mythology. The Odyssey. Yes, but even before that. Okay. Actually, well before that, because the Odyssey is sort of where some of this confusion starts to come up, I think. Oh, okay. So in Greek mythology, and this is coming to you directly from Wikipedia, so if it sounds a little familiar, it's because we're on the same page. A. In Greek mythology, the sirens were dangerous creatures who lured nearby sailors with their enchanting music and voices to shipwreck on the rocky coast of their island. So we know that. That sounds right. Mm-hmm. Yeah? That's something we've heard before. Roman poets placed them on some small islands called the Serenum Scopuli. In some later rationalized traditions, the literal geography of the flowery island of Anthemusa is fixed, sometimes on Cape Pelorum and at others in the islands known as the Cyrenews. Uh, all of these locations are sort of encircled by cliffs or like rocky outcroppings, so the idea was the sirens would lure sailors to crash on the rocks. Yes. Yeah, so it's like a very specific strategy. It's not just the idea of, like, seducing them. It's the idea of getting them to crash in these specific locations. Okay, so whereas mermaids kind of historically pull you into the water to drown you, it's specifically, like, steering your ship astray. Yes. Onto the craggy shores of Uh their island. Yeah. I just wanted a chance to say craggy shores. It's a good, like, sort of word salad. Mm -hmm. The etymology of the name is at present contested. Robert S.P. Beeks has suggested a pre-Greek origin. Others connect the name to Sierra, rope or cord, and um, Iro, which is to tie or join or fasten. So siren as a combination of these two things would mean like a binder or entangler, which refers to their magical song. Yeah. The way they sort of bind you and entangle you and enchant you. So that is uh, that sort of fascination. Although people also tie it to, you know, um, Odysseus being bound to his ship. Like it's just this whole sort of cool etymological thing. I love the Odyssey. Um, I mean, you know this about me, but I haven't talked about this on here a lot yet, is that I, um, as a fairly young child, as I think many, weirdly enough, many American children in like from like age 10 to 12 do, became really obsessed with Greek mythology. And so I undertook the task as like a an 11-year-old uh, sixth grader to like read the entirety of the Odyssey. And I um, am obsessed with it. And I'd forgotten and you have awakened like this <laughs> deep like upset fixation from my yeah, youth. It's weird. We were actually talking about this like literally just this yes. morning about Greek mythology. Yeah. Um, as a, hashtag Camp Half-Blood. Hashtag. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Hashtag um, Athena's Cabin. Uh, I'm Team Hermes. Mm-hmm. Although I definitely would have joined up with Artemis. Mm-hmm. Mm. 
I was just going to say I used to kind of like revel in the brutality of these myths and of the Odyssey as a, a, a really morbid 11-year-old. And one of my favorite sections of the Odyssey was always the sequence with the sirens and tying Odysseus to the mast of the ship. Um, so I'm just excited. I'm just happy to be here. That's the end of that. It wasn't anything <laughs> exciting. I just No, love, it is fascinating. I just love sirens. So if you had to describe your mental image of sirens to me, what would they look like? Um, well, I have two. Okay. Um, I mean, I have kind of the descriptor. They are give. They are given. Yeah, don't in, overthink like, it. Okay, just just tell me what you think of when you think of siren. When I think of siren, I think of a classically, um, conventionally beautiful lady uh-huh. with like flowing hair and like maybe she's got like a Little Mermaid seashell bra mm-hmm. and she sits on the rocks and she sings her song. But I know for a fact because I've read about it recently that they're they probably do not look like that. There's probably a lot more of like a traditional mermaid vibe to them, like kind of a spooky, a spooky vibe to them. But uh, you're gonna tell me, so, so I don't know. So you're thinking like what, like half woman, half fish, or like half woman, no, I'm half thinking fish, kind all siren, of, half woman, all woman. I'm thinking she's all woman, but all uh, like kind of blue and uh, gaunt and all uh, spooky. Well, I've got some news for you. Yeah, she. Does have those classically beautiful, you know, womanly wiles. Ah, yes. Uh, she is not half fish, which mm. is where some of the confusion starts to happen. I know she is half bird. I was gonna, what? She's half bird. Like a harpy. Similar to a harpy. Okay. Sirens were believed to combine women and birds in various ways. In early Greek art, sirens were represented as birds with large women's heads, bird feathers, and scaly feet. That's like some wrinkle in time shit, right? Like, yeah, dude, um, it's so weird. That's also. Um, Later, they were represented as female figures with the legs of birds, with or without wings, playing a variety of musical instruments, especially harps. So we think a lot of sirens as just singing, but they were also very talented musicians. And I don't think we should underwrite their skills yeah. as instrumentalists. I think that there's a really horrible tendency in the industry to sort of write women off into these specific roles, like mm. say, oh, you're the vocalist. And she's like, nah, bro, I'm the lead harpist. <laughs> like, come on, get on my level. I'm 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 just I'm overwhelmed by the part bird thing. It part does bird. make sense because they sing and birds tend to be credited for being the singers of the yeah, forest. Right? But uh, uh, in some Byzantine mythology, however, it was the upper half that was birds, sparrows specifically, and then the lower half that was women. I hate that. <laughs> you know, okay, so it's a bird, but it's just got a, you know, when the top half's a bird and the lower half just has legs that go for miles and a beautiful round bottom. Yeah, I mean, I don't think we should try to enforce our stereotypical beauty standards on design. I'm just, no, I'm, I'm, I'm being like the writers. I know. I just think, I think they're breaking all of these boundaries in a really kind That's of cool fair. way. But it's fascinating because, I want to yeah. know why Greek, uh, why uh, these ancient Greek writers made everything about their boner. Um, um, sometimes they were literally just little bird-sized birds with women faces. <laughs> <laughs> but were the women faces little or were the women faces to scale? Oh, no. I think they were very small. <laughs> Wait, that's actually the cutest one and I it's love it. It's very good. It's that very nice. That reminds me, and I'll have to do an episode where I talk about this, but there's a creature in Japanese mythology that is a dog with just the face of a man. Oh, yeah, that one. That's a lot. <laughs> and it reminds me of that. Uh, yeah, so it's like that. So, like, this sort of bird origin was very, very prevalent and very entangled in what uh, no pun intended, I guess, in what sirens were supposed to be and sort of the early impressions of them. Yeah. Later on, sirens started becoming depicted as more and more ha- uh, humanistic until eventually they were just beautiful women um, sitting out in the sea near these craggy shores. So originally their origin is not the water itself. It's the sort of outcroppings and cliffsides where a lot of birds live. Ah, uh, yes. Yes, that they would lure sailors 
into. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting because that sort of transitioned to us associating with the, them with the sea instead mm-hmm. of the cliffs surrounding the sea. And then once we started doing that, we started associating them with mermaid lore. That's amazing. So it's this really fascinating thing of where these creatures came from two totally different things and then sort of melded mm-hmm. into something very similar. Mm-hmm. But sirens, as they stand, are this idea of this um, this incredible seductress sort of powered by her musical gifts who seduces sailors to, to crash on the rocks. Mm-hmm. Um, and then again, as time went on, they became more and more human. And then eventually we started getting them tangled up with mermaid lore. And now they have sort of that uh, oceanic quality to them as well. Yeah. Sorry, I have two quick questions. Uh-huh. Um, or one of them's like a bad joke and one of them's a question. Okay. First question is, what did you always, when learning about sirens, imagine them sounding like when they sang? Because for me, it was either uh, they sounded like the like Celtic women recordings or they sound like Lana Del Rey to my brain. Uh, Bjork. Bjork? <laughs> you think Bjork could uh, think. draw people in and crash them on the rocks? I think so. I love Bjork. I would... I would. I think Bjork's got this really fascinating otherworldly quality. And uh-huh. I think that, like, when I think of cool bird women with, like, Swan strange, dress. Yeah. <laughs> the swan dress was really just her giving a shout out to uh, her siren roots. I don't think Bjork is, like, 100% siren, but I do think she's probably no, got some No, it definitely heritage. comes from some siren heritage. Yeah. My other, not, my other thing is not a question. It's just a really, really silly thing that I thought of, and it made me laugh. And now I'm saying it out loud because it's my podcast and uh-huh. I make the rules. Um like you also make the rules, but what I mean is they don't make the rules, um, which is just that uh, you, you have to be really careful uh, when you're uh, eating on your ship because if you give a siren like one French fry, then they'll all like swarm and try to get mine, the French fry. Mine, mine, mine. <laughs> I was just thinking about when um, when I was a kid and I went to Rehoboth and I ate fries on the boardwalk and like eight thousand seagulls <laughs> yep. descended upon my small child head. That's also funny. I, you know, you we've seen a lot of really cool. Uh, and I say we, I mean like the population as a whole. Uh-huh. I personally have seen a lot of really cool trends in mermaid artwork in the past few years. <gasps> yeah, people have started sort of reclaiming like the fishier side of mermaids and, and sort the of scary side. Yeah, and and getting further and further away from the sexualization of like the female side of them, mm-hmm. and looking at instead what would make like biological sense for a mermaid. And we'll talk more about this later. But there's some really cool artwork there, and a lot of it incorporates very different kinds of aquatic creatures. Like yes. I've seen some cool octopus mermaids or like. Like some cool like yes. sturgeon mermaids or eel mermaids or whale mermaids and it's really cool and so i'm thinking i want to start seeing some really cool harpy artwork with yes. various kinds of birds because we think of like small like sparrow sirens yes or i would love to see seagull sirens i, I want a vulture so siren funny. so bad and then vulture sirens would be like that band from the jungle book so yes. like they're singing beatles songs all the time i also just i need i i really i have the softest spot in my heart and this is a full invitation for people for people to send me art of this i love monster girls and i don't mean monster girls like made sexy like it's not about stop making it about your boner um sorry uh i I don't like when people make monster girls sexy. I mean, like when people like, like fully explore that. So I, I saw one of my favorite things I've seen ever on the internet was art conceptually of an anglerfish mermaid. Yes, I saw and that. It, it was very cool. It makes me so happy. It's everything. It's like the little girl in me who loved mermaids and the little girl in me who started reading Poe when she was eight. I give me those creepy monster girls. Tweet them at me. I love them so much. They're I very want, good. I want, I want hyper realistic uh, siren bird. Yeah, I want cool bird girls, actually. I want spooky bird girls. If I could choose any brand for myself, it would be cool bird girl. Cool (laughs) bird girl. uh, Which, like, Um, to be fair, is something I've already sort of claimed, I think. I mean, if one of us is a bird, it's probably the one. If I'm a bird, you're a bird. If I'm a bird, you're a bird. (laughs) But also my last name is quite literally Peacock. Yes, I'm aware. 
Thank peacocks you. really are the sexiest bird, too. I want to see a peacock siren, too. I was just going to say. I think that would be really cool. They could fit together, except for I do have to point out that peacocks do not sing beautiful songs. They make a horrible screaming sound. Okay, this is so unrelated. I'm sorry. I'm just going to like cut, put my hand over the microphone for a second. No, this good. is not for you. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, have you ever heard Tim's peacock sound? <laughs> no. Tim does like a very lifelike peacock sound, and it's unreal. I used to be able to do a pretty good one. The problem is it's too real, actually. It's not unreal. Like, it's incredible. It's just very strange to hear this sound Um, coming from this friend of ours who is like... Well, it's because peacocks sound quite a bit from a distance, like a small child screaming for help. Yes. Um, It's very good. Yeah, it's an... It's a very human-like sound, similarly to how uh, mountain lions scream like someone being murdered. It's something to look up. Which is also fascinating because I love the idea of, like... and, And this is sort of where I was going with this, is, like, these different bird sirens who have, like, different sort of ways that they use their power and can you imagine like a siren that sounds like a small child like screaming from distance that like uses that to like lure people in Ooh, that i would love be that so scary okay my favorite i'm talking so much about things i love and we'll get back to the mythology and i'm sorry but i'm also not sorry because i'm still doing it so like what does the apology matter my favorite horror trope ever is things that mimic voices. I I know it's overused in a lot of creepypastas. I know it's like a really heavily leaned on trope, but when it's executed well, it is like the surefire, like it is like a cheat code to activate my fear response. I love it. It's so creepy. So every time we bring Owen Wilson onto this show. Oh, yes. Particularly. (laughs) I mean, I'm just saying you mentioned like when it's well done, like clearly not like when shows just lean on it for humor. Of course. For the sake of running a joke into the ground. Yeah, for the sake of running a joke into the ground and slowly driving away our audience. Um, No, I, I, uh, shoot, like, there's something I watched recently where there was like a slow reveal like that. And I don't remember what it was. And even if I did, I wouldn't say because I don't want to spoil stuff. But a slow reveal of like hearing the sound and then seeing the thing mm-hmm. and the sound not ma- it's seeing it make the sound and the sound being so drastically different from what the, the, the thing is that you're seeing. Ah, it's good shit. That right. happens every time I try to watch a YouTube video on mobile. <laughs> oh, no. Um, it just doesn't sync up. <laughs> it just doesn't sync up. There's it's a YouTube, terrifying. There's a YouTube video of a cat barking like a dog, and then it so, so slowly realizes its owner's there, and it starts to meow again. It's real spooky. Look it up on the internet. Oh, yeah, you'll find it. Creepy. I bet you'll find it. Anyway, sorry. Uh, anyway, so back to sirens. So, sirens. Real quick. Uh, so we were talking about sort of our, our cultural explanation of, like, why the siren myth would have gotten confused over time. Mm-hmm. There's also a mythological explanation, uh, which is that, according to Ovid, the sirens were originally the companions of Persephone. They were, like, her girl squad. <gasps> My girl! Yeah, so, like, before they were siren like bird women they were just like persephone's friends like her her kick it girls like the the cheetah girls to persephone's like front woman her frontopia Um, yeah and when persephone went missing demeter gave her sirens wings so they could search for her oh yeah and uh then since they failed to well in a different sort of poem a different epic in the fabulae of hygienus um demeter cursed the sirens for failing to intervene in the abduction of Persephone. So oh. in the one explanation, it's Demeter giving them their wings as a an aid to help them find Persephone, and in a, a different, separate explanation, it's that Demeter cursed them to be these bird women since they didn't do anything to stop what oh. was happening. Which, you know, is a whole different thing, and that's interesting. <laughs> Greek um, mythology is often not very kind later, to women. Yeah. Um, later on, it's said that Hera, queen of the gods, persuaded the sirens—this is, like, after having wings— 
to enter a singing contest with the muses. The muses won the competition and then plucked out all of the sirens' feathers and made crowns out of them. Oh my god! <laughs> out of their anguish from losing the competition, the sirens turned white and fell into the sea. <laughs> that is so brutal. It's very much. Is that a Lars von Trier film? Because it's brutal. It may be. But that's where that comes from. So basically in our Greek mythology, we have this idea of the sirens who were um, Persephone's girl squad and then they either were enlisted to help find her or failed to stop the thing that happened and then they were given these wings and then Hera tricked them into singing against the muses who were like the literal singing you know yeah they're the physical embodiments of the arts (laughs) Um, so they lost naturally they lost that battle of the bands and then they um, had their their feathers plucked out it's not great that's horrible but at that point they were then in their human forms fell into the sea and that's where we start getting that conflation yeah um so that would that would imply that they're not birds anymore when they are uh, on the rocks correct I think it is at this point understood that we no longer view sirens as, as birds. bird women, okay. uh, but they, they were at one point in time. Mm. I still would very much like to believe that there are cool, tricky bird women out there. But I like that, but I'm sad. Oh. Um, um, however, sirens also have a place in other mythologies as well. Gimme, gimme. Yeah, so this may be sort of an etymological thing as well, like a false cognate maybe, but in Philippine mythology... There is a creature called a Serena, which is a mythological sea creature from Filipino culture. Um, Sort of like the sirens, they have similar abilities and skills in terms of their their seduction and their luring with their voices. Um, But they are what we picture as mermaid creatures. So they have like the half fish, half woman or half fish, half man. Um, There are also male siren folk and they're called serenos i was literally gonna ask if they were called serenos that's how it works uh head and torso of a human and the tail of a fish okay so these are like merfolk like these are exactly like merfolk but they have again the beautiful and enchanting voice that can attract and hypnotize they distract sailors from their work and cause them to walk off ship decks or cause shipwrecks which i think is like a cool poetic way to remind it it's a nice rhyme yeah yeah don't walk off your ship deck and don't get into a shipwreck (laughs) <laughs> Dex and Rex, I love it. Uh, they sing with enchanting voices while hiding among the rocks by the shore. So they function in the same way as sirens, but they look like we picture mermaids. So it's possible that either these came from a cultural understanding, and that's why they have the name that they do, and then they sort of transition into this other thing that we know as mermaids now. It's possible that we, somewhere along the line, heard these things were called Serena, which sounds to us like siren, and so we were like, they're the same thing when they weren't. Mm-hmm. Um, or it's possible, it's possible that these creatures are just very real and we have f- had different explanations and interpretations for them culturally yeah. over time and it's sort of split off um, in these various understandings. I do have to pipe up really quick and I'm really sorry if you were going to talk about this later, but it's just one of my favorite things that mm-hmm. I think about a lot when I think about sirens, which is we always like to have the kind of scully uh, explanation. Right. And one of those that I have read a lot about actually is the theory that, um, what we consider to be accounts of sirens and hearing the song of sirens is uh, whale songs? Uh, Possible. Actually, that wasn't probably going to come up, but I'm glad that you did bring it up because it's really interesting. Because whale songs, and I don't know, and and some people find them, like, weird, but depending on the type of whale and depending on what recording of it you've heard, it can Mm -hmm. sound, in my opinion, really haunting and beautiful but very otherworldly. It doesn't sound like a norm, like a sound you would expect to Mm -hmm. hear. And especially if you're out on the ocean in, like, f- thick fog in, like, 
ancient, the times of like ancient Greece or the Roman Empire, and you hear this ethereal like wailing song float mm-hmm. across the water. Like, I, I can imagine you wouldn't necessarily be lured to follow it, but I can imagine right. you would think that is something other. It know? is really fascinating. Yeah, and definitely. There's a lot to be said for the experiences that we have and the ways in which our perception influences them and our surroundings and the fact that, you know, I mean, things that go bump in the night, this idea of, like, Mm -hmm. things that are kind of – it's not liminal spaces because it's it's something different. But when you're in the middle of the woods and things seem to go on forever or when you're on the sea and you can't see anything around you, where – sort of the opposite of liminal spaces, I guess, which exist only within mm-hmm. very specific boundaries. The idea of being somewhere where those boundaries don't exist yes. opens you up to the possibility that it could be anything. I also think uh, human the human brain doesn't respond well to situations that remind us in, like, a little corner of our, like, evolutionary memory of the time when we were not at the top of the food chain. Yeah. Because we were prey animals for such a long time that places that, I think, hearken back to a more primal time like the forest or the open water of the ocean things that are remove us from our communities and our society and i'm getting a little bit like i'm getting into my like thinking too hard space right now but i think things that remind us of our smallness and remind Mm -hmm. us how very very without our tools and our communities and all the things that make human beings strong and tough and able to survive and and compete with nature when you strip us of all those things and put us in a vulnerable place like the middle of the woods or the open ocean, how very, very, very fragile and breakable and edible we are. Yeah. And I think it's very easy for things to become very frightening. Absolutely. And um, there's a lot to be said. I'm very fascinated by the concept of the collective consciousness mm-hmm. and the ways in which we as human beings share a very instinctual relationship with the world around us mm-hmm. and the ways in which we perceive certain things that we have a concept of based on the experiences of other people that we ourselves had not had um, and thinking of time as a very nonlinear thing and just like perceiving things that exist outside the realm of what we can physically quantify. Mm-hmm. And so being in spaces like that, I think, open you up to it, to this idea of things that exist out of time. Like, you know, when you're in the middle of the ocean, it doesn't matter how good your Wi-Fi signal is. It doesn't matter how far electronics have come. It doesn't matter, you know, what our medicine is like. It doesn't matter how good our insulation from the outdoors is back on land or back at our homes like you're away from everything you're completely untethered to the society that has evolved and so you're in this place where it's just you in your most basic form as a human against the world in its most basic form yes and it's fascinating it Um, exists completely outside of the structure that we've created for ourselves. absolutely and i actually like i um i don't often tell people to go look at things on reddit because (laughs) because reddit is an encapsulation of the internet as a whole it has pockets that are very very cool and interesting and also pockets that are deeply distressing but there is if you have some free time and you want something really interesting to look over related to this subject there's a thread on ask Reddit that was made a couple years ago, basically putting out a call for people whose work made them out on a ship in the middle of the ocean a lot, like marine biologists and a lot of people mm-hmm. who did research work in the open, like in the in the ocean, basically asking for their most unsettling experiences of being out mm-hmm. there. And there are a, some amazing accounts, not even necessarily with supernatural implications, although there are a lot of those, just describing the feeling and the psychology and the experience of being a person mm-hmm. in that kind of environment. And it is a fascinating read. So if you have some free time and want to look through something like that, 
it's 100% worth it, I think. And it's I think really it, interesting. Yeah. I mean, I I haven't spent that much time out on the sea in that And obviously, I've never been out on the sea in that capacity where I was that far removed from society. I am not uh, an ancient mariner, nor am I a sailor. <laughs> I am a 23-year-old woman with an arts degree. But uh, I love the sea, and I love that idea. And the closest experiences I've ever had have been being out in the woods in the middle of nowhere. I, I camped a lot as a young child, not in cabins or in, like, RV sites, but in some private property that our family um, owned or, like, that the family owned and that we would use out in uh, the middle of, like, Salem, West Virginia. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was just acres and acres and acres of woods. And we were, like, a mile out from civilization, which is a long way when you're an eight-year-old girl. And we just had a tent and we would just set it up. And we were so far removed from anything else that happened Mm -hmm. that it was just a completely different world. You know, it didn't matter, like what was going on anywhere else because once you're in the middle of the woods and you have no cell phone and you're just wandering the hillsides with your sister like it's just it's something completely different it's a totally different world there is nothing that gives you any more of an advantage than people had thousands of years ago and it's so fascinating and for me it's actually a really cool feeling I Mm -hmm. like being in that space I love it because to me it feels the closest like I can get to just having some sort of like pure interaction with myself and the world because mm-hmm. there's sort of nothing. And I, I'm not anti-technology. I like I run a podcast, right? Yeah. I have a smartphone. Um, I'm looking up notes on Wikipedia. But like, I think it's so interesting to just remove every distinction between yourself and the world and see what you learn about yourself. Even if you're not like going through any particularly harrowing experiences, like I never had to fight off a bear or like yeah. <laughs> I never had any sort of cryptid experiences out there in the woods. I just had this sensation of belonging inherently in something so much bigger than myself. And it's really fascinating to feel that small. I think it's very humbling. And um, I think eventually I will reach a point in my life where I can appreciate that experience and not be horrified by it. (laughs) But at this point in my life, I do not want to be humbled. Um, Well, it's okay, because if you get to that point, then we're going to have to find a new host because then our dichotomy won't work anymore. Yeah. We can't have Addison stay in the house, Peacock, and (laughs) Alex get out in the woods, Flanagan, because that's just sort of going to... Yeah, that's going to put the kibosh on that. unseat our personal brands like that. Yeah, but or if you do, you just can't bring it in here. It has to stop outside the suffering cube. <laughs> stop outside the... You got to leave it at the... Check it at the curtain. Check it at the curtain. Um, anyway, after that little uh, little sort of foray into deep thoughts... Uh, yeah, we're going to start a second podcast within a podcast. Welcome to Deep Thoughts. Uh, anyway. So, sirens? Sirens. Actually, I'm going to transition to Merfolk now because Ooh, yes. that's where our sightings come into play. <gasps> sightings! Sightings! Yep. And I've got some celebrity sightings for you. You're going to love it. Oh, man. Uh, so here, let's go, let's go back a little bit. We've sort of started at the beginning with sirens and then came all this way to where the connection point is. Now I'm going to go back and start at the beginning with Merfolk. And then when we catch up to that fork, we can go forward. Does that make sense? Well, if there's anything America's about, it's uh, leaping back to the past. So, yes, let's go. Yikes. Okay. Um, sorry. <laughs> Not sorry. I said it. We're here. All right. These um, next few notes come from an article that Matt Simon did for Wired.com. Oh, I love Wired. In which he relates some facts and anecdotes about mermaids. Um, here we go. A few major points. The very first sea person, or at least the earliest account we have of one, actually comes uh, from the like Babylonian mythos. Yes. Um, a male named Ea was the Babylonian god of the sea. He was known to battle evil while also introducing his people to the arts and sciences. Aww. If that's not, like, the purest thing for a god to do, I don't know, like, what else to give. That is maybe the perfect deity. That's awesome. I yeah, like that. Yeah, that's great. So that was, like, the very first sort of iteration of this. Mm-hmm. After that, uh, when the Greeks and Romans sort of 
sort of enclosed that mythology and brought it into their fold and like interpreted, reinterpreted it for their own people, mm-hmm. that is what became Poseidon and Neptune, is the same figure. Oh. Um, so that idea of like this scientifically minded marine biology god that also <laughs> battles evil. And I wish that the Greeks, when they'd taken that in, had kept the arts and sciences and maybe not made him a sexual predator, but that's fine. Um, well, I mean, I'm not sure that he was better in ancient Babylonian mythos. That's fair. We just the Greeks and Romans yeah. did have a lot of problems with that in their mythology as a whole. Mm-hmm. Anyway. <laughs> um, which reminds me of a really fascinating thing about Medusa that I read. Oh, I, I we'll, have a lot we'll of thoughts and feelings yeah, about Medusa. I'm, I'm sure I, you already know it, but it's really interesting. Anyway, I yell about Medusa every day of my not life. not going to go there yet. Anyway. So uh, the Greeks and Poseidons brought that figure into their culture and it became Poseidon slash Neptune. Um, ancient Syrians believed in a goddess um, who was actually the first mermaid. She was human on top and fish below, and they believed she safeguarded the fertility of her people. Neat. Which is interesting to me because mermaids have been interpreted since then in a lot of culture as being like very sexual creatures and just to get like right down to brass tacks i'm so confused as to how that works it doesn't well i was gonna say <laughs> but like no there are I don't accounts know in like ancient mythology of like mermaid women taking on like a human male partner and bearing that's children not, that's not how but fish don't do it like that so my question is what is their I don't want to, it's really rude to ask people what their genitals are, and I would never do that with just a person I met or, like, a friend or anything, but mermaids, what's going on? Actually, one of my very favorite deconstructions of that trope is there's a Futurama episode (laughs) where they, like, go down to this, like, I think it's Atlantis. They, like, find Uh Atlantis. They go to this Atlantis society, and, like, Fry meets this mermaid who's, like, a southern belle, because basically the concept is that Atlanta, Georgia is now Atlantis. Thank God. (laughs) And so uh, they, they meet this, like, southern plantation mermaid family and he falls in love with like the southern belle mermaid woman mm-hmm. and like they're about to like like they want to get married and like have their life and go do their thing and like so they're gonna they're gonna hook up and then they like get to that point and then she's so confused she's like what are you doing what what how this this isn't gonna work yeah um i was gonna say not they to- just literally have this confrontational moment of like Wait a second. <laughs> this is not possible. <laughs> I don't want to be that, not to be the person who knows, like, entirely too much about the mating practices of fish, but, like, most of the time it happens, ex- like, the whole mating process happens externally to the bodies of the fish and is not anything that anyone would consider sexy unless they have very particular tastes. Unless you really like latching your mouth onto the side of your partner and becoming a vestigial organ. That's just anglerfish, though. Most of the time it's it's just, uh, let me lay some eggs over here and then you go do your thing with the eggs to fertilize Uh them and I'll sit over here and have a Mai Tai and not look at you. (laughs) Yeah, right. It's not... Which, like, okay... Maybe the ideal. I mean, like, it's great for some people, but what I mean is it's not an, it's something I don't, I think most people would consider an explicitly sexy. Or, like, not a very sensual practice, yeah. maybe. It's it's a little bit, um, it's much more pragmatic. It's kind of clinical. Yeah, yeah. it's much more pragmatic than the mermaid lore would imply. Uh, Which, you know, everyone has their tastes. Oh, of course, everyone has their tastes. But up until that point in mythology, basically, uh, merfolk were pretty much, like, reasonably nice. They were like the sealies of the the sea fairy world. You know, Ah. they weren't going to go out of their way to like do anything bad. But there is some dark mermaid lore out there. Give me that. Let me tell you what. Um, here's the thing. You know what I like. I know. I know you're ready. Yeah. 
So we're familiar with Pliny the Elder. Yes. Oh, we love We've Pliny the Elder. We've gone down that rabbit hole before. Pliny yeah. the Elder has some things to say he has about some, Merfolk. Oh, he has some thoughts about everything. Something I haven't talked about it's on this true. show, but he definitely was like way into um, medical cannibalism and like a lot of other really bananas stuff. That well, he Gwyneth, loved mermaids. Yeah, he was into a lot of stuff that Gwyneth Paltrow probably blogs about today. Yikes. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> anyway, Pliny the Elder wrote yes. some stuff about Merfolk. What did he have to say? And Pliny the Elder is among the first accounts that started to explicitly contextualize mermaids as being much more fishy and aquatic and pragmatic in appearance, actually. Give me that. So the accounts that we see today and the artwork that we see today of mermaids that have scales sort of all over their body are like very practical torsos that would streamline mm. them for swimming as opposed to looking good in a, like a Disney mermaid bra, mm. is that... It comes from from Pliny the Elder's works. Mm -hmm. How does Ariel decide which uh, sea creatures are her food, which sea creatures are her friends, and which ones are her clothes? I have the same questions about Pokemon. That's fair. Anyway. Uh, Anyway. So Pliny mentioned that these creatures would climb aboard ships at night and sink them, which is not great. I mean— From what I understand, it was mostly unprovoked, too. How did they get aboard the ships if they have, like— Very carefully. Yeah. I mean, you—like, they're fish that can jump. That's true. Like, I'm pretty just, high. But I'm imagining, have you ever seen a fish, like, on the deck of a boat, like, out of water, and the and they're not getting anything done like that? No, but these also presumably have, like, a, a dual respiration system. That's that's what was I missing from, from this for um, me. Because I, they do have the, the human-like torsos. That's true. So they do probably conceivably mm-hmm. have lungs as well as gills. Yeah. All right. Well, they're kind of—mermaids are kind of— Amphibious a little bit. They, I believe so. Specifically, once we get into Pliny the Elder's stuff. Okay. Yeah, he talks about their appearance being a little bit more rough and, by implication, unattractive, which again is like totally subjective. Yeah, I was gonna say. Um, okay, Pliny, like you don't uh, know. Yeah, it's true. But once I... again, but medieval Europe starts to have a lot of tales about mermaids too, merfolk, mm-hmm. I should say, and they are pretty wide ranging in terms of some paint them as the traditional like seductresses or like very desirable partners um but a lot of times they're very tricky very sneaky and will sabotage you in a lot of ways Hmm. i love my scaly mermaid wife here's (laughs) all my life i've perfect scaly wife all my life i've been teased for my attraction to scaly mermaid women but i'm here to say i love my scaly mermaid wife it's very good so here is something actually that might be interesting and i don't have an exact source for this, but it's something that I have heard many times before, and I don't think that it's like a specific citation. This particular citation is on an article called uh, from visitcryptoville.com, and go. the yes. writer is referencing someone who quoted something else in an Amazon review. So I'm sorry that's a little bit delineated, but yes. the facts behind it are solid. I just can't give you a singular source for them. Okay. Which is that in the Middle Ages, and this is just me talking now, I'm not reading. Mm-hmm. In the Middle Ages, there was sort of a pervasive belief that sea society, and we've talked about this before on this show, I think, was sort of perceived as a mirror world to, like, land society. Yes. Right? And we're used nowadays to a very scientific view of animals and biology, whereas back then there was a lot of mysticism surrounding our view of nature and the world. And so there was this idea that everything on land had a component in the sea. Yes. And so it was like, you know, well, there are, there are water dogs, and there are water cats, and there are water bugs, mm-hmm. and there are water cows. I mean, there's got to be water people. I mean, yeah, to be fair, there are water dogs and water bugs and water exactly. cows. Yeah. So it makes sense that there would be water people. Yeah. Right? And then the other component to this is that way back when, in medieval times, 
our perceptions of animals and other biological creatures were largely influenced by moralism. So it was sort of understood in a very biblical sense that all creatures on Earth existed to teach humans a lesson Mm. and that we were supposed to glean very specific moralisms from these creatures. So, like, if you looked in an encyclopedia under, uh, like, for example, a snake, there would be, like, a description of the snake and also telling you what the snake means and why you should be wary of them and what about the snake we should not uh, do ourselves. Or, like, you would look up pigs and it would be like, this is what a pig is and what a pig does. But also, like, don't be a glutton. Like, that kind of a thing. Yeah, humans are really self-centered and I kind of hate them. It's Um, true, but it was the... I'm not excusing it. Oh, no, I know. I'm just saying that was the worldview at the time. And so merfolk, in a lot of ways... Uh, have sort of come down the line as being perceived with these creatures of lust or these creatures of seduction mm. and um, amoral relationships. And so that is perceived as like a purpose that they served in the folklore at that mm-hmm. point in time. So I've talked pretty extensively now, and I apologize for all of that setup, about these creatures as mythological beings. But now I want to get into people who have actually seen them and yes. why we think that we should like acknowledge they could possibly exist. Do you remember when that parody documentary came out, like that fake documentary about mermaids and all those people took it seriously because it was so convincing? Heck yeah. I wanted it to be real so bad. But we're here to tell you that whether or not that documentary was fake, I mean it was, but despite that, mermaids are totally real. Super duper Don't worry about it. They are not like, uh, I would assume you're going to tell me, they are not like Ariel. They are nothing like Ariel. <laughs> Do they sing? Uh, yes, which is where the siren thing comes so in. So they are play. a little bit like Ariel. So they're, no. <laughs> they're my, not like Ariel. My favorite scene in The Little Mermaid was where Ariel dragged Prince Eric to the bottom of the ocean and killed him. Oh, that's funny because I really like the part where she leaped aboard Prince Eric's <laughs> ship and sunk it in the middle of the night. <laughs> it's my favorite That was part. my favorite part, yeah. but you know. It's my favorite part of the Disney animated classic, The Little Mermaid. I also, you remember that scene where like she's, she's like sort of coming up on the rock? there and like the the water's crashing all around and I really like how she was doing that to lure other ships onto the rocks to crash. I I loved that scene. That was my favorite thing about The Little Mermaid actually. I like I take it back. That that was like peak Little Mermaid to me. When I think about that movie that's the scene that stands out. My favorite part was when Ariel cracked open the skull of a fallen sailor and ate his brains with her bare hands. Yikes. Um, So talk about merfolk sightings. Anyway. Um, the sightings of merfolk do not really line up with the fairy tale perception of merfolk. So when people are seeing mermaids, they're not seeing Ariel. They're seeing the fishier creatures yeah. with, yeah, with like these crazy aquatic characteristics. That's the stuff I like. So one idea to explain these sightings is that merfolk are animals. They're either some variety of deep sea fish that we just haven't really seen and categorized yet, or they... That, that might just, you know, have a top half that looks like a human mm-hmm. and so people's imaginations fill in the rest of the details. They might be, uh, and here's an interesting one, some variety of primate that evolved to an aquatic lifestyle. So it was just like a branch in the evolutionary tree. And instead of evolving into a land-based animal, they evolved into a sea-based sentient creature. Aquatic apes. Which is also really fascinating. Aquatic apes are something to look up, research. They're really interesting. Yeah, they okay. are really, really interesting. Um, I got excited. Not a lot of evidence to support either idea, but a lot of sightings. And here's one that I think you'll really like, because I didn't realize this was a theory out there. But there is a pretty prevailing theory that merfolk might actually be intelligent aliens. <laughs> Gimme that alien lore! Okay. This idea supported, actually... By the early merfolk legends, which describe semi-aquatic gods that came from the stars. 
So if you want to reinterpret this ancient Babylonian god Ea as coming from the, the heavens, uh, there is a, a theory out there that supports the idea that maybe these merfolk descended from a race in the stars who came down to the earth and were able to pass themselves off as gods because of that uh, very unusual origin story. And, and over time, as the perception of humans has evolved and people have stopped believing in the same type of godlike creatures, these aliens have had to adapt their survival strategy and just sort of relegate themselves to a different role. And perhaps they resent humanity for relegating them to this role. And perhaps that's why they just sink ships all the time because they're angry. It's possible. They got a bone to pick with humanity. A fish bone to pick with human. I'm done. Um, Are you ready for my favorite mermaid sighting? Yes, please. This comes from an article called Cryptids of the Caribbean. Amazing. Are you ready for this? That's. They shouldn't make any more Pirates of the Caribbean sequels. I do want this. The, uh, yeah. So we know that one of my favorite niches on this podcast has become historical celebrity sightings. Yes. Like when we talked about the Snellygaster or uh, I think you guys had one with the Basilisk. Yeah. Here's one. The seas of Hispaniola are the source of some historical accounts of mermaids. Christopher Columbus himself allegedly sighted mermaids on two separate occasions. Finally, he's good for something. In 1493, while sailing near the shores of the Dominican Republic, Columbus sighted three mermaids cavorting in the water. He claimed that they rose out of the sea and that he had a good look at them. Columbus described the creatures in the ship's log thus. In a bite at the coast of Hispaniola, I saw three sirens which rose well out of the sea, but they are not so beautiful as they are said to be, for their faces had some masculine traits. Okay, the, fuck you. The Sorry. admiral says that he had seen some at other times on the coast of Guinea. Uh, which is, like, okay, we know this already. Columbus was a trash man. Oh yeah, he was an asshole. And I am kind of actually, like, in a weird way, validated by, like, how terrible this account is because yeah. it implies that, like, you know, we were right. He's an edgelord and I hate him. <laughs> um, but here's what actually, like, I think is really funny. Walking historical YouTube comment. What? It is thought that Columbus perhaps cited manatees, which in his tired state misidentified as mermaids. And I love the idea. Like, okay, I love it being an actual mermaid sighting, but I love even more the idea of Christopher Columbus seeing manatees and being like, those chicks are ugly. <laughs> Like, oh, look at those ugly broads. Like, I don't know. I know glasses weren't really like a thing back then. Is it possible Christopher Columbus really needed glasses? I mean, it was just like everything that I can't identify immediately is a chick. I mean, to be fair, we know he's not great at identifying things because he did land on North America and think it was India. Burn. So, um, in seriousness, I mean, manatees are mermaids. They're just cow mermaids. <laughs> yeah. Actually, it is supported by history that his diary and log entries tended to be kind of sloppy, and it's thought that maybe his vision had been failing him slightly. Amazing. Well, do you have any um, other sightings? I do, actually. But first, I just want to go ahead and say that um, here's interestingly enough, manatees were actually a pretty common sight at the time. So why would Columbus and his, and this occasion, suddenly insist that manatees were something different? Like, it doesn't make sense. He knew what a manatee was. Okay. He would have seen a lot of manatees. So it's actually very unlikely that he would have seen a manatee and misidentified it as a human. <laughs> because he'd seen a lot of yeah. both of those things. Well, he may not have seen a lot of women. Like, <laughs> I'm just saying. He's he was too kind busy. of a jerk. Well, they also didn't bring women on boats because we're supposed to be bad luck. Right. So, like, he probably didn't see a lot of them. But uh, So if he had actually seen manatees, it's more likely that he just would have not reported it at all. Like, yeah. that would have been a weird thing to put in your diary. Today, I saw some sea creatures in the sea. Yeah. You know, where sea creatures go. Yeah. Uh, but we don't know. We know that that's, it was interesting enough to him and he had enough of a reference point for the fact that they might have existed that he knew what to call them. Yeah. Um, 
Another sighting comes from another one of history's favorite assholes, John Smith. Uh. John Smith also claimed to have seen a mermaid in the same waters in 1614. (gasps) Yeah, so like 150 years later, John Smith in roughly the same area was like, hey, mermaids. Amazing. Okay. Smith wrote, her long green hair imparted to her an original character by no means unattractive. Begun to experience the first effects of love. I hate him. (laughs) At least he's not dissing on manatee girls, though. I mean, at least he's not calling her ugly, but it's still bad. Don't fetishize the mermaid. I don't know what to tell you. It's weird that he would, like, go write in his diary, like, Dear Diary, today I saw a sea woman. She was pretty. (laughs) She was. It's actually kind of, like, Um, unproblematic in that it's just, like, he's not saying anything bad about her. He's not saying, I saw a mermaid chick and immediately decided to bang her. Okay, but here's the thing. The green hair thing tells me something, and I have to bring up a very important point. Is John this Smith is looking for Manic Pixie Dream Girl. Is this history's first Manic Pixie <laughs> Dream Girl? History's first Manic Pixie Dream Girl. Yes. Yes. Give me the historical romantic comedy about John Smith and his mermaid pixie dream girl. Only if it ends with her pulling him into the ocean and eating We've him alive. We've talked about this before. It's going to happen. I know. I'm writing a short story about it. Don't worry about it. TM, TM, TM. Um, so Christopher Columbus, John Smith, Blackbeard, and his crew reported seeing mermaids on numerous occasions I... in the same area and considered them to be omens of bad luck and misfortune. In fact, Blackbeard was so wary of merfolk that he was known to order his crew to steer clear of areas where they were thought to exist. That's actually really neat. Yeah. Um, I like that. Pirates often saw a lot of really wacky stuff. I wonder how much of that was attributed to um, scurvy and or syphilis. Don't worry about it. Okay. Just don't worry about it. Okay. Just let it happen. All right. So those are the sightings that I have for you. The further along we get, uh, the more difficult it is to quantify mermaid sightings because Photoshop and hoaxes. Mm. There's well, a lot of that. I was going to say there's the really classic uh, mermaid hoax where mm-hmm. a man sewed a, or attached a mummified yeah. monkey to a fish and it was passed off as real for yeah, a long bad. time. Um, or it might have just been a sea primate. No, because it was... They it might have been a sea primate. It, they it might have been. <laughs> Alex. <laughs> Maybe sea Frankenstein made a sea creature mermaid. <laughs> Uh, Anyway, most people don't actually know this, but Frankenstein is the mermaid, not the... (laughs) No, you're talking about Frankenstein's mermaid. (laughs) You're talking... I hate it. Um, Oh, man. Frankenstein wasn't the monster, but Frankenstein was the monster. Yeah, exactly. Wisdom... um, uh, Knowledge is knowing that Frankenstein is the doctor. Wisdom is knowing that Frankenstein's the monster. Yeah, it's good. Um, It's Um, pretty good. So those are the sightings that I have. I... Decided to air more on the side of the historical ones because it was just fascinating to me that, like, these pop culture figures all, like, had mermaid sightings in common. I like people (laughs) that have been widely regarded in history for a long time. I mean, like, regardless of our personal feelings. Mm. People that have been widely regarded in history for a long time Mm -hmm. as being verifiable and accountable sea explorers, like... We're totally down with saying, hey, I saw a mermaid. Oh, sorry. Um, yeah. That's... So our culture used to be a lot more accepting of mermaids, and I don't know when that changed. Bring it back. We used to be a lot more accepting of a lot of really wild stuff. It's true. And, like, not accepting at all is a lot of, like, very normal and, like, totally acceptable things. Yeah. So why don't we just, like, can we just get better but keep the whimsy? Can we just collectively agree to, like, be chill? And cool. Just, like, for a second? Can we just be cool for a second? Uh, anyway, so that's all I've got. And okay. that was, like, a very lore-intensive episode. I love I it. I went a lot of places with it, and I don't... 
I feel like maybe it wasn't as funny. I don't know what you guys are like looking for here, but I found it really fascinating. And that's well, all I was trying to get I think out of we it. can consider maybe this uh, particular episode a palate cleanser to the ones that are like 80% jokes. <laughs> yeah. Um, which some people are into and some pe- and everyone has different tastes. Not every road we go down can be Bray Road. <laughs> that's very true. Not uh, every road can be Bray Road. I do have a quick question for you about this. And yeah. it's literally just a, it's just a silly thing I thought about because I'm just curious. Um, back to the siren aspect, not the merfolk aspect as much, as much as I want to hang out in Merland for mm-hmm. Over and over, because um, I love them. What song would lure you to crash on the on the rocks? Were you an old timey sailor, but with access to the pop culture, the American pop culture soundbook of today? A soundbook, the American pop culture songbook of today. Uh, you're asking what song would lure me in? Yeah, it would be probably a three time Grammy award winning summer smash crossover fusion hit "Smooth" by Santana, featuring Rob Thomas of Matchbox Twenty. <laughs> It wouldn't be All Star by Smash Mouth. Look, I, it can. You asked for one. All right, that's fair. It wouldn't be a mashup of the two. <laughs> Smooth Mouth. Um, what would yours be? Um, see, I was gonna go legitimate and say it would be some kind of Lana Del Rey song because I'm trash. You think I'm not being legitimate when I reference Smooth by Santana? Okay, you're right. I'm so sorry. Um, I guess I more meant it would be I'm going really basic with it, and I'm going to say probably the answer to, like, anytime anyone asks me about a song that affects me in a particularly profound way, which is, and I'm ashamed but also unashamed enough that I will say it is Gods and Monsters by Lana Del Rey. That's a good one. Also, I do love Bjork. I would probably, if I heard the sounds of Bjork, steer in that direction. Well, in Bjork hopes is of, a siren. Yes, in hopes of so meeting Bjork. naturally, Bjork's yeah. stuff is going to work. I would steer in her direction in hopes of meeting Bjork. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, I would agree with that. I love her. I'm now I have a Bjork song stuck in my head. <laughs> you know that one where she's like, "It's oh so quiet." Shh. shh <laughs> I love Bjork. Oh, so, so weird. Still. I love her. It's very good. Um, if you like clouds, make them your friends. Um, that was <laughs> if you like screaming, life. make it music. Um, anyway, <laughs> this good. has been welcome to. Uh, I left an extra hole for its hopes and dreams. <laughs> welcome to Bjork and for the weekend, the Bjork fan. Cast. Oh yikes! That's so good. Why is that so good? I hate it. <laughs> Thank you. Um, um, so Bjork's gonna be in our cryptid dating sim. It's gonna be soundtrack entirely by Bjork. Um, if we can get, uh, if someone knows how to put us in touch with Bjork's agent, with uh, her, yeah, please uh, let us know. I guess this is a good time to segue into announcements. Actually, oh, yes. So speaking of that cryptid dating sim, um, thank you everyone. We are really overwhelmed and inspired by your response to that idea. I was Seriously. not like okay. So I was just like being silly and logged onto the Cryptic Keeper Twitter and like tweeted that out in response to like all of the Dream Daddy dating sim stuff and like was not expecting it to get like a hundred retweets in an evening. That yeah. was very much. And for people to just feel so passionately about it, which is so exciting because yeah. it tells me that there's but more people like us amazing. than I think. And so now we are actually very seriously looking into it. Yeah. Um, so like plot twist, it might happen. We've gotten a lot of emails from interested people. And so thank you, first of all. Um, if I've not gotten around to responding to you yet, know that I have seen it and I'm very interested in your work. We're going to try to get as many people on board as possible if we're mm-hmm. able to move forward with this. The only thing holding it up at this point is that I don't want to make anyone any promises or like extend any offers officially your contracts until I know that we'd be able to pay you. Yeah. So this is literally not me like throwing an idea out there and then like just not moving forward with it. It's that my first and foremost priority is to make sure that we could compensate artists before we start asking artists to do work for us. Yes. Because as people who do a lot of creative work 
uh, in our lives, we understand the importance of paying artists for their work. Yeah, you guys are incredible and we love our fan base so much and we like are so thankful for all of the stuff you guys have done for us without compensation, just like sending us your fan art or like doing silly photoshops for us or like giving us ideas or feedback. Like that's incredible and thank you so, so much, but we would never ask that of you. So just know that we're working on it and we're moving forward that direction and after like next week when my life stops being a little bit crazy, um, I'm going to start moving forward with it and working on it. So um, mm-hmm. just look for emails from me, but don't freak out if I don't get them to you very soon. Yes. I apologize. Oh, and uh, store update. Uh, I'm not sure if there will be an episode next week. Like oh, I said, yes. I'm going to be in New York all week and I don't think I'll be able to pack my microphone. Yes. So we will be absent next week, but I will maybe do similarly to when I was out of town um, and Alex did a little cryptid coffee live stream. I would be happy to do like a sort of talk back. Q&A kind of coffee chat about cryptozoological stuff yeah. live on the Facebook page. Um, if you, Incidentally, if you're not in our Facebook group, then you should join. It gets pretty silly in there sometimes, oh, yeah, including it's a fun space. the other night when I had wine and then did an AMA and it got very silly and, and it was I, really wonderful. Yes, and I uh, rode those coattails to the sky and I did an <laughs> AMA as well. We both did. Um, it was great. It was fun. Uh, but the the Facebook group, if you want to join, is the Cryptid Keeper Appreciation Group. We've got a really solid little uh, little family in there right now. It's a fun place. It's really place. nice. It's a great space and we we love it. Socials. You can find us on Twitter at CryptKeepPod C-R-Y-P-K-E-E-P-P-O-D You can find us on Facebook under the Cryptid Keeper. We are on Patreon under the Cryptid Keeper. Uh, we're on Stitcher. We're on all the places where you get your podcasts. Keep hitting us up with those sweet, sweet reviews. Yes, and just like... Love it. Yes. Um, and uh, you can also, if you have... Um, st- actually, I wanted to open up the open up the floodgates a little bit, so to speak, for this. And I wanted to say, if you have um, a personal sighting, I would love to start featuring listener sightings. If you've ever... If you or a family member or a friend of a friend has ever had like a cryptid sighting or some kind of weird thing you couldn't explain, I would love it if you would email it to us at cryptkeeppod at gmail.com. Yeah, we've already gotten a few through the DMs on our Facebook page, and they're super cool. So once we have enough of them, we're definitely going to like try to put together some sort of anthology episode, maybe. I would love to have an episode devoted to listener experiences. So, And I think it would be easier to compile them in emails than in Facebook messages. So yes, email us at cryptkeeppod at gmail.com with uh, your experiences. And as always, any feedback is totally welcome. So tweet at us, uh, slide into those DMs, hit us up on our Facebook page or in our Facebook group. Um, If you're following either of us independently on Twitter, feel free to tweet at us too. (laughs) And we love interacting with you guys. We love getting back to you and hearing from you. And that really helps shape the show and helps us figure out, wow, I said that without even tripping over those words. You did it. Shape the show. And then I ruined it. It's okay. Um, But that really helps us move forward and figure out where to take the show from here. It helps us so much to have your feedback, know what you guys like, know what you don't like. Mm -hmm. And to give us an idea of how to keep providing you with content that you want while still doing stuff that we're passionate about. So thank exactly, because like I'm gonna let you in on a secret: we don't know what we're doing. Uh, <laughs> we're figuring it out as we go. We definitely don't know what the other one is doing. I don't know. <laughs> Neither of us has any idea what the other one's doing. I mean, surprise! Like I'm just gonna throw that out there. Did you expect this? Ah. I just did like a weird jazz hand thing and Alex oh, you ruined it. It's nothing. It could have been anything. Oh, damn. They don't know what we're doing either. You're right. They can't see us. I keep forgetting they can't uh, see but us. But that's about it, yes. I think. Um, as always, our music is by Andrew Giada. And um, 
we will do something next week. Uh, don't know what yet. Will not be an actual official episode, but there will be some sort of content for you on Sunday of next week. Um, please wish Alex luck as she takes her ah. play, Singularity, to the Samuel French Off-Off Broadway New Play Festival yeah, in New York you. City. It's very exciting. We're very proud of her. She didn't know I was going to say this. I so did she's, not. Oh, oh, she's being overwhelmed, ah. and I'm sorry, but also I'm proud of you. Okay. And as always, we hope we can keep you around and stay safe out there. 